Father, we thank you for the good news that we find in your word. Good news that began right after the fall. News that one day a child would be born who would crush the head of the serpent and lift the curse off of your people. God, we thank you for the role that various men and women have played in proclaiming that good news. So, Father, we pray that as we consider again your unfolding story of your covenant with your people, of your relationship with your people through your covenant, that you would remind us afresh of your grace and your kindness and of your word that you've spoken to us. And we pray that you would give us humility and wisdom to receive with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing our class this morning uh, on how we got our Bible. Just a couple of announcements as we're getting started. If, if you're interested in visiting the Bible Museum, we're going uh, uh, in a couple of Saturdays on March 21st. We still have about 10 spots on the bus, so if you're interested in going and haven't signed up yet, uh, there's still time to do that. If you are going to the Museum of the Bible, it is not mandatory, but we are going to have an informational meeting before Sunday school next Sunday at 9 a.m. right here. So if you're going and would like some information about the Museum of the Bible, if you have questions, um, that might be a good time uh, to, to answer some of those questions. If you're interested in the recordings, as we've mentioned, you can sign up for those at the Welcome Center where you sign up for the sermons. Just indicate that you're interested in the Sunday School recording. Those recordings are also being posted online, by the way, on the website. So we're, we're trying to tackle this question of how we, get our Bible, how we got our Bible, uh, and we're looking at this part of the class, at the, the story of the Bible, kind of we've started with Moses and Genesis, and we're working our way through the Bible story, uh, and uh, to see kind of the, how scripture was written uh, progressively and how it unfolded over the centuries. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Old Testament. And, and in the Old Testament, one of the main things that we've seen is that God, he has made a covenant with his people. And then he communicated with his people on the basis of that covenant. So God acts to save, and then he, he speaks with his people and communicates his redemptive works. And that communication is recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, and that general pattern and principle of Scripture holds throughout uh, this, this idea of covenant communication, that God's speaking with his people on the basis of his covenant. Well, today, as we're working our way through the Bible story, we've kind of wrapped up the Old Testament in a way. So today, I want to tackle um, a, an, an interesting, a fascinating topic that's worthy of our attention and that can sometimes be a, a thorny topic. Uh, and that is, I want to talk about the Apocrypha today. Um, so I hope this class is informative, edifying, and clarifying on what can be a confusing topic. Um, and I'm also going to attempt to address this topic right in line with everything we've been saying about Scripture as covenant communication um, so far. So I want to ask a question, actually, as we get started. Who has ever read any part of the Apocrypha? Raise your hand. If you've read any part of it, it counts. Okay. Great. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Um, no one thinks any differently about any of us that have raised our hands <laughs> about reading the Apocrypha. So I'm going to start kind of at ground zero, though. I, I want to explain what it is we're talking about 
um, and, and give kind of a history of it. Uh, and so this class is going to look a bit different because there's going to come a point very soon when we're going to conclude the, the Bible story within the timeline of the Bible. Uh, you know, in the next week or two, Lord willing, we'll finish the New Testament story. And then we're going to start with church history. And we're going to look at what happened to the Bible next. Well, today we're going to cheat a little bit because we're going to trace the history of the Apocrypha through church history. So we're just going to kind of narrow our focus and follow it all the way through. I think that's the best way to address this topic in particular. So what about the Apocrypha? Well, Apocrypha as a word means obscure, or it could be translated as hidden things. Um, that word was not invented by Jerome, uh, but was popularized by a man named Jerome. We'll talk more about Jerome later in the class as we will, I'm going to introduce just kind of a lot of different people and things in this class that we'll talk more about later. Jerome's important because Jerome, uh, he did his work in the 300s and he translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin. And uh, when he did that, as we'll talk about in a moment, he included the Apocrypha, and he designated those books with that name as the Apocrypha. So Apocrypha means obscure or hidden things. Sometimes these books are referred to as deuterocanonical. So that's a big old word, isn't it? Uh, that just means a, a second canon. Yes. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah. So uh, if you have more questions about Jerome and how he did his work, <laughs> there you go. Uh, he's just saying that uh, Jerome did his work, uh, the church that he did his work in still stands. Um, so sometimes the Apocrypha is referred to as deuterocanonical. Uh, that's a big word. It just means second canon, uh, right? So canon, um, we use that word to refer to the books of our Bible. And deutero, like Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means second law, the second giving of the law. So deuterocanonical means second canon. That is a technical term that sometimes the Roman Catholic Church would use to refer to the Apocrypha as deuterocanonical. Um, the, the canon, the Bible that we use, they would call it protocanonical. Anyways, you didn't need to know that. Um, what is the Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha refers to a specific set of books that were revered among the Jewish and Christian community. So in other words, the reason I'm pointing this out is that the Apocrypha, that word, doesn't refer to just any old non-biblical book, or depending on who you're talking to, any old book. Uh, it refers to a specific set of books. So today, we're focusing on what is sometimes called the Old Testament Apocrypha. Uh, these books were written in between that time of Malachi and the Gospels. So it's written, that's why we're talking about it today, these books were written between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, and these books were mostly written right after the 200s. Malachi wrapped up around the 400s BC, and these books were mostly written after the 200s BC. Uh, in the future, we're going to discuss um, other books that are sometimes called the, the New Testament Apocrypha, like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, there's, a, there's a whole other distinct category of ancient religious literature that, we, that I, I want to be careful that we distinguish the Apocrypha from. Uh, and that is 
a set of books that we would refer to as pseudepigraphal books. That just means falsely written. Uh, they're, they're written, a set of books that are written under a false name. So uh, a perfect example of this is the Gospel of Peter. That book uh, was not written by Peter. Uh, and it's an ancient book, um, but it was not revered ever among the Christian community or among the Jewish community. It was known to be written under false pretenses, and so that's what pseudo means, pseudopigraphal, uh, falsely written books. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. These books are not like that. These are um, a different set of books that were revered and well-regarded and read uh, by Jewish people and by early Christians. So what are these set of books? I said it was a specific set of books, and I've provided for you in your handout uh, the set of books that are a part of the Old Testament Apocrypha. And you'll notice I've, uh, towards the bottom that uh, there are some books that are used in the Eastern Orthodox Church that are not accepted as a part of the Apocrypha by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so these books are... Um, in the Apocrypha are 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st Esdras, um, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, uh, Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, uh, Baruch that is uh, Jeremiah's uh, writer, the Epistle of Jeremiah, Psalm 151, the Prayer of Manasseh, additions to Daniel, and sometimes those are separated out. I've kind of listed out those separate additions. Sometimes those are distinct writings or stories. And then 3rd and 4th, Maccabees. So that's the, the list of books. And again, if you were to pick up a Roman Catholic Bible, there are a few of those books that you would not find um, because they're only used in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So now I want to I shift to talking about how, so that's kind of what the Apocrypha is. Um, now I want to talk about how the Apocrypha was received. How were these documents treated? Um, as I've mentioned, uh, these books were, were known, they were well-known, and they were read. Um, <clears throat> and so kind of a, an, an overview of how these books have been viewed historically is that they've been generally revered as opposed to those false writings, the pseudepigrapha that I mentioned. These books have been generally revered uh, among the Jewish people and among Christians, but they have been disputed as being scripture for a long time. So uh, just kind of by way of analogy, the, the, the category of having a revered book that is not inspired is not a foreign concept to us, right? There are plenty of books that we revere, that we appreciate, that mean a lot to us, but we understand that they're not scripture, right? So, so a common example over the last 400 years, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, has been a significant book for Christians all over the world. Um, but even though that book is very meaningful to, to many of us and many of our brothers and sisters over the last 400 years, we do not consider that book to be inspired. We do not consider that book to be scripture. So I, I just want to use that as an analogy to say that having a category of books that, is, that are revered but not scripture, is not unusual. Uh, we do very similar things. We have books that we appreciate, um, but don't consider scripture. But the story of the Apocrypha is more complicated than that. 
uh, it's more complicated than Pilgrim's Progress because some have elevated it to the status of inspired scripture. So, so that's the kind of overview, generally revered but disputed. So how was the Apocrypha received in the Bible? Is there anything in the Bible that we can uh, learn about how the Apocrypha was considered? Well, um, to put it briefly, there, there is little to no evidence that the Jewish people considered the Apocrypha scripture. The Apocrypha was not a part of the Jewish Bible. It was not a part of Hebrew scripture. So in the Hebrew Bible, there, there is no Psalm 151. In the Hebrew Bible, there is no Esther 10 verse 4. Um, now, originally, they didn't have chapters and verses, but I'm just letting you know, like, that verse that we would refer to as Esther 10.4, which is part of the Apocrypha, is not in the Jewish Bible. Furthermore, um, it's very likely that the Apocrypha was not written in Hebrew, uh, the, whereas most of the rest of the Old Testament was. The, <clears throat> the earliest copies that we have of the Apocrypha are in Greek, uh, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament was written centuries after the, the Hebrew texts were originally written. And the Greek translations were done outside the borders of, of Judea. Uh, they were, the Greek translation of the Old Testament was done in Egypt. These details, I'm mentioning these details because they indicate that the Apocrypha was not part of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and that matters for later church history discussions. Um, there's also no indication in the older New Testament writings that the apocryphal books were received as the word of God. Um, so over 300 times, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. That is not uncommon at all. That as you're reading, especially the Gospels, you regularly see the, the New Testament authors not merely referring to a story or alluding to something from the Old Testament, but actually quoting it. <clears throat> and when they do you can see that the New Testament writers consider the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. And so they're, they're referring to it in an authoritative way. They're appealing to the Old Testament as the final word, as the authority. And a, a typical scripture quote in the New Testament would go something like this, and I've got this up on the, the screen for you. It is on the screen for you. Um, it would be something like this in, in Romans 3 verse 10 where they're introducing the quote by saying, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's quoting Psalm 14, verse 1. Or you, would all, you might also see uh, the Old Testament appealed to in this way, like in John 19, verse 37, where it says, and again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they've pierced, quoting Zechariah 12, verse 10. But we don't have anything like that for the Apocrypha. Uh, we don't have an appeal to the Apocrypha as being authoritative scripture. Now, that doesn't settle the matter, right? Um, because there are, th just the New Testament quoting the Old isn't the only decisive thing about determining if uh, a book is a part of scripture. But it does matter because it, it shows, it's one indicator that the apocryphal texts were not received as authoritative like the rest of the Hebrew scriptures were received. So, inside the Bible, there's, there's no indi indication that the Apocrypha was received as authoritative scripture. Now, uh, to uh, be as forthright as I can be, there are indications 
um, some more clear than others, that the New Testament authors were aware of the Apocrypha. The most uh, clear example of that is in Hebrews 11.35. It's very likely that that passage is referring, you know, so Hebrews 11 is talking about, you know, all of these people by faith, these are things that they've done, and it's very likely that Hebrews 11.35 is alluding to or referring to a story from the Apocrypha, but it's not appealing to the Apocrypha as authoritative scripture. Um, it's not doing that in any way. Um, so I'm about to scoot on to talk about church history a bit, but I just want to pause because I've been talking for a while and <laughs> just see uh, if anybody has any questions or comments at this point. Okay, I'm going to keep talking. I'm gonna, oh, sorry, I see a hand now. Go ahead. Great question. So the question is, are there other Old Testament books that are not quoted in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. Uh, two that come to mind are Esther and the Song of Songs. Um, and uh, because it's not quoted in the New Testament, questions have come up about those books in church history, about whether or not they do belong in the Bible. And one of the easiest ways to answer that question is that it's in the Hebrew Bible. And as we looked at last week, Jesus accepted that that threefold form, that set of books that was identifiable as scripture. And those books were, were always a part of that. Yeah? Good question. All right, now we're going to go into some fun territory. We're going to talk about church history. So this is where we're cheating a little bit. And, and again, I'm going to introduce some things in here that we'll revisit later. Um, but there are some things that I, I need to explain to hopefully make this, uh, make, this make sense. So, the story of the Apocrypha begins with, uh, in church history, begins with a book called the Septuagint. Um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, this book was produced in that in-between time, in between uh, the Old and New Testaments. Um, and for now, uh, you just need to know uh, that the Septuagint included the apocryphal books. The, the, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament included with it the apocryphal books. Um, and that mattered because the Septuagint was the main version of the Old Testament that the early church used. So as Christianity spread, it was spreading far beyond the, the borders of Israel, and Greek was a common language that was spoken in the Roman world. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek, because people knew that language. Um, in the 200s, one of the early church pastors and theologians uh, named Origen, he viewed the Apocrypha as scripture because it was part of the Septuagint, because it was in those books. And he received pushback because there were no Hebrew copies of those texts. Um, it wasn't part of the Jewish Bible, but he just kind of fell back on uh, God's providence and said, well, if it's part of the Septuagint, then it must be from God. Uh, a century or two later, Augustine also accepted the Apocrypha as inspired because he accepted the Septuagint as Christian scripture, and the Septuagint included the Apocrypha. Um, and so both Origen and Augustine are basically saying, because the Apocrypha is in this Bible translation that we're using, then it must be God's word. Uh, so Augustine said that the Apocrypha is reckoned among the prophetical books since they have attained recognition as being authoritative. 
and he said that they had the same spirit of God speaking in those books. I think I actually, oh, there you go. I've got that quote up there. Now, Jerome, on the other hand, so Jerome was doing his work in the 300s. I've heard that his church, the church where he did his work still exists today. Um, he's important because, as I mentioned earlier, he translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin uh, when he created the Latin Vulgate. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a later class. Um, but Jerome, he included the Apocrypha in the Vulgate, but he did not consider them inspired. So, you see from a very early date, the two, three, four hundreds, there's a split view on the Apocrypha. And one of the reasons that Jerome did not consider the Apocrypha to be scripture is because it was not a part of the Hebrew Bible. And Jerome, when he was translating and making the Vulgate, he was using the Hebrew Bible. He was using the Hebrew texts, and the Apocrypha wasn't in there. So Jerome said, Jerome, this is a common practice, right? In your Bibles, you might have a preface at the beginning that explains your text. Uh, that is a very old tradition. Jerome had prefaces to, the, to his work. And he said in the preface, he said, The church reads Judith, Tobit, and the books of the Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures. So let it also be read these two volumes, Wisdom and Sirach, for the edification of the people, not to give authority to the doctrines of the church. So you can see he's got a, he, he says these, these books matter, they're edifying, they're encouraging, but they're not scripture, and they're not authoritative. Uh, he also said, the church indeed reads these books, but does not receive them among the canonical books, and not for establishing the authority of ecclesiastical dogmas. So, again, the reason I bring these folks up is because from a very early time there was a split view on whether the Apocrypha was to be included in the scriptures or not. What's interesting is that as you go on through church history, that split view continues. It is not at all the case that the Roman Catholic Church had a consensus view before the Reformation. Uh, so before the Reformation, there were several prominent Roman Catholic theologians and priests who did not accept the Apocrypha as scripture. So I've given a couple of examples for you. Nicholas de Lira, he wrote commentaries on the Apocrypha, and he said, books which are not of the canon are received by the church to be read for instruction in morals, but their authority is reckoned less fit for proving matters which come into dispute. More clearly is this other fellow, Cardinal Xemenes. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But he was writing in the 1400s, and he matters for a very interesting reason. Uh, this cardinal, he put together a book called the Complutensian Polyglot. You say that five times fast. Um, that book, by the way, is at the Museum of the Bible. So if you go, you might see it. Uh, the Complutensian Polyglot was a, an edition of the Bible that had various translations side by side. So it had the Hebrew next to the Greek, next to the Latin. Um, and it was meant to be used for study. Um, but when Cardinal Xemenes was putting together the Complutensian Polyglot, he did not include the Apocrypha. He did not consider it to be a part of the scriptures. And he said this, the Apocryphal books are outside of the canon which the church receives rather for edification of the people than to confirm authority of ecclesiastical dogmas. So he's, you can see that there's this there's this split view that goes back through history. It is not at all the case that there was a consensus 
among the spiritual authorities of the Middle Ages that the Apocrypha was scripture. So, um, and then even, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my place. Uh, what matters next is, so Cardinal Ximenes was doing his work in the 1400s. And then, of course, Luther comes along in the early 1500s, and Luther shakes things up and does his work. And it's not until the Council of Trent in 1546, and the Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic response to Luther. It was the, it was the Roman Catholic response to the, the Reformation, to the Protestants. It wasn't until then, in 1546, that the Roman Catholic Church made a declaration that uh, if anyone received not, as I've got up here on the screen, if anyone received not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts as they have been used to read in the Catholic Church and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition and knowingly and deliberately condemn the traditions aforesaid, let him be anathema. So they're, they're talking about the apocryphal books here. And it's very interesting. You can see their logic and their reasoning is that these books are a part of scripture because they're in the Vulgate. But Jerome did not who made the Vulgate, did not consider them to be on the level with Scripture. Um, so what's interesting to observe here is that you've got the Council of Trent saying that the Apocrypha is part of Scripture because it's in the Vulgate. And then in ancient times, you have Origen and Augustine saying that the Apocrypha is part of Scripture because it's in the Septuagint. Um, and so you just have folks backing up to saying, well, it must be part of Scripture because it's in that book. Yep. Yeah, Josiah. Huh, fascinating. So, Josiah was just mentioning that um, that Origen and Augustine, or not, Jerome and Augustine would have been contemporaries, and that uh, he's heard that Jerome baptized Augustine. So, I did not know that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you've got Luther, on the other hand. So, here's where you, you start to have a, a Protestant stream taking a, a slightly different direction, but I'm, I'm just going to say slightly different direction, because Luther, one of his great works is that he translated... Uh, the Old and New Testaments, he translated the Bible into German. Um, and when he did that work, he included the Apocrypha in uh, his Bible, but he did not consider them to be inspired. Uh, Luther said the Apocrypha, that is, the books which are not regarded as equal to the Holy Scriptures and yet are profitable and good to be read. So, um, so he's including them in his translation. And by the way, this is why I, I think this was mentioned last week that the, that the Amish include the Apocrypha in their Bible. I think this is why they do, because I think they use Luther's translation of the, the German Bible. Um, but then among the Protestants, there, there's a consistent witness that even though the Apocrypha might be included in the Bibles that they're using, they don't consider it to be Scripture. Calvin outright rejected the Apocrypha, uh, although he was familiar with it. Um, many early English translations of the Bible included the Apocrypha. Um, so that would include Tyndale's Bible, the Coverdale Bible, and the King James Bible. They all included the Apocrypha. Um, but none of those editions and none of the translators considered the Apocrypha to be Scripture. Uh, and in fact, uh, the Apocrypha was part of the King James Bible for most of the King James Bible's history. It was not taken out until 1885. Um, but, again, it was never considered to be a part of the inspired scripture. So today, where we sit, 
um, the Roman Catholic Church views the Apocrypha as inspired and on equal footing with the rest of Scripture. Uh, and so they would use the Apocrypha to establish uh, faith and practice, right? They would view the Apocrypha as being authoritative for what we should believe and what we should do. Um, the Eastern Orthodox Church has a slightly different set, um, and they have kind of a similar view um, to the Roman Catholic Church. Um, as mentioned before, bringing it a little closer to home, the Amish include the Apocrypha, and I think they're doing that because they're using um, Luther's German translation. And of course, in, in Protestant Bibles, in our Bibles today, we don't include the Apocrypha, um, although many Protestants would have been using the King James before 1885 would have had it in their Bible. So now I wanna, I'm going to transition in just a second to talk about how we should evaluate and, and how can we use the Apocrypha. Um, but, and I'm not sure I can answer any of your questions about church history, but does anybody have any questions <laughs> up until this point? <laughs> or any details to add? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, good question. So the question is, what church doctrines would the Roman Catholic Church use that come from the Apocrypha? So this question matters because, because this is why the Council of Trent addressed the issue, right? Because um, there were certain practices that the Roman Catholic Church was doing that the Protestants were saying, we shouldn't be doing that. And the Roman Catholic Church, it was helped, it was helpful for them for the Apocrypha to be authoritative. So some of those would be uh, praying to the saints. There are examples, I'll mention these towards the end. There are some examples of, of the deceased praying for the living. And there are examples of um, the living praying for the dead, that their sins could be forgiven. Um, and there were a couple other things that I think I've got in the slide and that I can mention towards the end. But there were some things uh, that it was useful for the Roman Catholic Church to have the Apocrypha be authoritative for them. Yeah. All right, so now I want to turn to ask, like, so how, how should we evaluate the Apocrypha? Well, to summarize, I would say the Apocryphal books are important and they're useful in some ways, but they are not inspired. And hopefully that's not, that last part especially is not a surprise to you. Um, so why would we not receive these books as inspired? Well, within the books themselves, there's a self-awareness that the time of the prophets have ceased. And this matters, right? Because we've talked about how in God's covenant communication with his people, the prophets were coming and explaining the covenant to God's people. Uh, either promises of blessing, uh, anointing kings, or bringing uh, warnings to the people on the basis of the covenant. But there was a self-awareness that after Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, or Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, that the prophets ceased, and the apocryphal books know it. They speak this way. So, in uh, 1 Maccabees 4.46, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all these, but in the 1 Maccabees 4.46, for example, they say, and they laid up stones in the mountain of the temple in a convenient place till there should come a prophet and give an answer to them. So there was an awareness, and you can see in these other examples, there was an awareness that there was not a prophet in Israel, that the, that the time of the prophets had ceased. Um, Josephus, I'm going to go on a slide. Uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century. Uh, he talks about the Jewish Bible, and importantly, he says 
that in their history, he, he lists out that threefold form that we would recognize in our Old Testament. And then he says, it's true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes very particularly. So since Artaxerxes, he means, you know, like after Esther, after Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the Jewish history has been written. And he's talking about the Apocrypha. He says, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers. So it, he's saying it doesn't have equal status with scripture. We haven't received it that way. Because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. So Josephus, very early on, like right during the time of the apostles or right after, he's speaking as a, as a Jewish person saying, we haven't accepted the apocryphal books. We know about them, but we haven't accepted them as authoritative because the prophets ceased. And the apocryphal books uh, seem to recognize that as well. Uh, the storyline, another reason that we, I think we would not accept uh, the apocryphal books as part of scripture is that the storyline and the message of the Bible, um, it fits very nicely with the way that Malachi concludes and the way that the gospels picked up. There's a very organic and clear connection between the two. So Malachi, um, Malachi ends, this is the last book of our Old Testament, saying, uh, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So there's this the, a final word from the prophet saying that before the day of the Lord comes, I'm going to send Elijah to you. Um, and he's going to, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to turn the heart of the fathers to the children. In the heart of the children to the fathers. Well, when the angel in Luke 1 comes to Zechariah to tell him about the birth of John, his son John, who would be John the Baptist, he says, the angel says, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, that's Elijah, to turn the hearts of the father to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And then Jesus affirms John's role as Elijah, who was to come in Matthew 11, 13, and 14. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, or Elijah, which is to come. So the storyline and the message of the last prophet of the Old Testament and the first prophet of the New Testament are directly and organically connected. And that's the reason that John the Baptist is such a big deal. I mean, if you just think about uh, the beginning of the Gospels, like everybody's going out to John the Baptist. The religious leaders are going out to him saying, who are you? But John the Baptist was such a big deal because the prophets had been silent for so long. And now all of a sudden, here's a prophet. This is exciting. People are going to him. Something's about to happen. So putting this together with the last point, we can see that the, the story, the message of Scripture is consistent within the Old and New Testament, that the apocryphal books were aware that the prophets had ceased and Malachi and John are aware that they are prophets who are continuing that covenantal communication from God. The last thing I'm just going to mention is that the Apocrypha was never part of the Hebrew Bible. It was never part of that threefold form of the Jewish Bible. Um, so uh, one author speaking on this says that, you know, Jesus recognized and revered the three-part Hebrew and Aramaic canon, which never included the Apocrypha. Um, and in fact, the acceptance of the apocryphal books as part of the Old Testament took place later in church history, so after the, the 200s, after origin and after, and shows kind of a, a detachment from Jewish tradition and from the Hebrew community. Um, 
two authors that I read spoke about this, saying the growing willingness of the pre-Reformation church to treat the Apocrypha as not just edifying reading, but scripture itself, reflect the fact that Christians, especially those living outside of Judea, were losing contact with Jewish tradition. Um, And R.K. Harrison, is just an author writing about Augustine affirming the Apocrypha, uh, identifies Augustine affirming the Apocrypha as a serious break with the Hebrew and rabbinic tradition. Um, So those are some reasons why I think we would not include the Apocrypha. Just as an illustration of, of again, like what's going on with the Apocrypha and and why this issue uh, can be confusing, um, I just want to illustrate it in a couple of ways. Um, One is just thinking about our Bibles. You know, if you guys are anything like me, you maybe have some things tucked into your Bible. Uh, so in my Bible, you know, I have uh, the prayer guide from Wednesday. Um, I have, as I confessed at the last family meeting, I have the five goals of the church taped to the inside flap of my Bible. I have our church covenant in here. I have a hymn in here. I have um, our uh, connection group directory in here. Um, those are all important documents to me, uh, but just because they're tucked into my Bible doesn't mean I think they're inspired. And uh, you just look in the pew in front of you. You know, we, we have our Bibles there. We also have two songbooks. That doesn't mean that we think that those songbooks are inspired. So just by way of illustration, uh, we can see how this could become confusing. If there were important books to God's people in the past, and they're being tucked in with Scripture, um, then we could understand how some people would be confused and think that maybe these things are all on a level, and maybe they are all inspired when just the fact that they're together doesn't mean that they are inspired. So I want to mention briefly how I think we can use the Apocrypha, and then uh, if you have any questions, if we have time, I'll open it up. Uh, One author, Beckwith, he says this, he says, the Apocrypha provides the earliest interpretations of the Old Testament literature. They explain what happened in the time between the two Testaments, and they introduce customs, ideas, and expressions that provide a helpful background when reading the New Testament. So there are parts of the Apocrypha, as I mentioned when Bob was speaking, there are parts of the Apocrypha that are not a reliable spiritual guide. Um, I might, nope, I don't have any examples of them. I have examples of them in my notes. If you'd like to see them, I'll uh, talk with you about them afterwards. And in fact, I've given you a couple in your handouts. Um, The additions, uh, so we just need to be aware of that, that there are some parts of the Apocryphal books that are not reliable spiritual guides, that are not trustworthy. That doesn't mean the whole thing's a sham and that we can't trust a lick of it. Um, the, uh, the additions to some of the books, so some of the parts of the Apocrypha are just additions, like Jer- parts of Jeremiah, Daniel, Esther. There are later additions to the original text that are not in any Hebrew manuscripts, some of which solve obvious problems about the text. So I mentioned earlier that Esther's not quoted in the New Testament. Some uh, people in church history have had a problem with the book of Esther because it doesn't even mention God. Right? You probably know this about Esther. It doesn't mention God or the Lord, and I think that's actually intentional by the author. It's a whole other conversation. But guess what? The addition to Esther, the very first verse, is so convenient. It says this, Then Mordecai said, God hath done these things. Like, that's really convenient. Like, yeah, the, that would be included there to explain that God did all these things because that was a common concern. It's like, where's God in all of this? Um, And, you know, an interesting question for us is, again, just in thinking about how do we evaluate the Apocrypha. Is it, is that true? Is that verse true? God hath done these things. Yes. 
that's true. Um, and so, again, just to affirm, we don't need to suspect everything in the Apocrypha, but that doesn't also mean that we need to accept it as inspired either, just because it says true things. Uh, the Apocrypha presents generally reliable historical material. You can find out a lot about what happened between the Old and New Testament, uh, for instance, by reading the, the Maccabees. Um, and uh, that, by the way, is where Hanukkah comes from. If you want to know the story of Hanukkah, read the Maccabees. Um, the Apocrypha also presents encouraging and edifying material. So this last week, I confess I've not read a lot of the Apocrypha, so I started reading it. And the first few chapters of First Maccabees are really inspiring. It's the story of you know, Israel being uh, oppressed and about a family rising up uh, to, to fight and protect the people. Um, and uh, you know, it's very encouraging and edifying in some ways. So in final evaluation, I think we can say, like many who have gone before us, there's, there's good things in there. Um, they're useful in some ways, but not inspired and not authoritative for our life and practice. Um, like the rest of scripture. Man, I maybe have time for like one question. Does anybody have a question that they want to ask? Okay. If you want to talk more with me about this afterwards, I would welcome that. I'll close by reading Psalm 119, verses 34 and 35. It says, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Amen. You are dismissed.